That's our text for this morning, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. The title of the message is The Marvel of Christmas, and I've subtitled it Reflecting on the Greatness of God. The Marvel of Christmas, Reflecting on the Greatness of God. We're going to turn our attention this morning to what is a pretty theologically dense text in Luke's Gospel. Again, we're going to step aside from our study of Ephesians for the next several weeks so that we might saturate our hearts and our minds in the incarnation of Christ Jesus. You know, when you think about the incarnation, I don't know how often we think about the incarnation aside from the few weeks prior to and maybe the few weeks after Christmas, but when you think about the incarnation of Christ, it should cause us to marvel, to marvel. Now think about the word marvel for just a moment. It means to be filled with wonder, to be amazed, to be astonished, or to be awestruck. It's how we respond when we're confronted with something that resizes us and puts our relatively small lives into a greater context. To marvel, it's that breathtaking response when you stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon and you're immediately swept away by the reality of a global flood. The fact that God created what you see. It's the at-loss-for-words response when you see pictures that have been sent back to us from a Hubble telescope of deep space, of galaxies that are some three billion light years away from our little dot called Earth. And we think about the fact that God spoke every one of them into existence. He put them in their place, and he knows them individually by name. It's the overwhelmed response you experience when you hold a newborn baby, and I have the privilege of doing this often in hospitals, but it's that overwhelmed, thinking about marvel, it's that overwhelmed response when you, when you hold a newborn baby and you contemplate that the eyes that are staring back to you belong to an image bearer of God. You see, we marvel at many things. In fact, I would submit to you this, God made us to marvel. God made us to marvel. But unfortunately, I think we do far too little marveling over the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the realities of the gospel, if we're not careful, hear me out here, the realities of the gospel, if we are not careful, can become normalized to us. I think that one of the greatest threats to our spiritual lives is becoming desensitized and unamazed at the incarnation, the life, the death, the ascension, and the mediatorial work of Christ on our behalf. I think that is one of the greatest dangers to our spiritual lives. It's becoming desensitized. It becomes normal to us. Christmas comes around every 365 years, and we put the tree and the tinsel up, and we we exchange gifts, and we hang the stockings, and and we do Christmas. But oftentimes we can, if we're not careful, forget the heart of it all. We're not awestruck. We're desensitized and unamazed. My hope this morning is that God would stir in our hearts both a humility and an uncontainable adoration for his greatness. We are to adore him for his greatness. The psalmist tells us that we are to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his great name. David did that well in the Psalms. I pray that God would restore in us, if they have grown cool in any way, shape, or form, fresh, white, hot affections for God's Son, Jesus Christ. Our text this morning has traditionally been referred to as the Magnificat. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 1 there, right above verse 46, it's probably subtitled there. Uh, in my Bible, it says, Mary's Song of Praise, the Magnificat. 
Uh, that word magnificat there, it's a, it's a title derived from the opening word in the Latin translation of the Bible. The opening word is, is magnifies. Magnifies. Mary, the expecting mother of Jesus, she breaks into spontaneous song of adoration here in Luke 1, 46 through 55, just breaks into song as she contemplates what God has done for her. And her song in these verses here, verse 46 through 55, it follows a traditional Jewish flow of worship. She begins in verses 46 through 49. Just let your eyes glance there for just a moment. She begins in those verses by praising God for who he is, which we would do well to take note of. We want to praise God for who he is. And then she'll conclude in verses 55, or 50 through 55 rather, by praising God for what he has done and what he has promised to do. That's the outline that you see taking place in the text this morning. Mary is praising God for who he is, and then she begins to praise him for what he's done and what he's promised that he will do. And so with that being said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, pens the following words. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for all those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline this morning. Let me give them to you in advance. Number one. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so is this. God is worthy of our highest praise. Sometimes it's good to be reminded of the simple truths of the Christian life. God is worthy of our highest praise. Number two on your outline, right there in the middle. God's grace always works contrary to the ways of this world. God's grace always works contrary to the ways of this world. And then third and last, down towards the bottom there, God always, and I love this, keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? Guess what? The writer of Numbers doesn't answer that question because the answer to that question is emphatically implied. God never speaks and then not acts. God never promises and fails to fulfill. God keeps his covenant promises. Number one, God is worthy of our highest praise. What I want to do here is I want to walk through verses 46 through 49, and I want you to see how Mary worships, worships the living God for what he has done for her. 
And then ask yourself the question, am I marveling like Mary marveled over the handiwork of God? A on your outline there is we should be some that marvel at God's greatness. We should be individuals that marvel at God's greatness. Look at verse 46, just a short phrase here. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. I mean, this is the expression of the core of Mary's heart. She is so deeply moved, literally overwhelmed as she considers the character of God and his graciousness towards her that she overflows in adoration and thanksgiving toward him. The word translated magnifies here. It's the Greek word megaluno. It's a beautiful word. It means to make or declare great. To declare the greatness of something. When Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, what Mary's doing is she's declaring the greatness of God. Mary's heart is so full of adoration for God that she overflows in praise and thanksgiving. And one thing that we learn from Mary's song is that her heart was absolutely saturated in Scripture. I mean, these ten verses that we'll study this morning are absolutely chock full of Old Testament references to the Word of God. Of course, that would have been the the Bible that Mary had. It would have been an Old Testament Bible. All the Scripture that she incorporates into her song of praise, it's, it's already been rooted and hidden and treasured in her heart and her mind. She had spent a good deal of time hiding God's word in her heart, and so it just came out. We've talked about Luke 6.45 often on Sunday mornings. Anybody have it memorized? I've challenged you on numerous occasions to memorize Luke 6.45. Out of an overflow of the heart, finish the sentence, the mouth speaks. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we're hiding God's word in our heart and in our mind, it will be what comes out of our mouths. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think far too frequently, we're, we're caught up in the wonder of the greatness of our God. We're caught up in the wonder of many things. But I think infrequently, too infrequently, are we caught up in the wonder of the greatness of God. David tells us in Psalm 29, I mentioned this verse as we opened, uh, Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, David says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Again, in Psalm 145, 3, David says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable or unfathomable. And let me ask you this question, friends. How has your praise life been lately? How has your praise life been lately? If you find that your heart hasn't been praising and making much of God, it's very possible that you've ceased to marvel at God's greatness, to be overwhelmed, to be awestruck at God's greatness. We should be individuals who marvel at the greatness of our God. B, we should marvel also at God's saving grace. Look at verse 47. Mary says this, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices, she says, in God my Savior. Not only is Mary utterly awestruck by the greatness of God, but she's also taken back by the very fact that God would save her. When was the last time you were awestruck at that fact? And I I asked myself the same question. That God would save me. 
that he would look on my helpless estate. That he would choose me, Ephesians 1, from before the foundation of the world to be adopted as his son, to be adopted as his daughter. The word translate rejoices here. It means to to gush or to spring forth with exceeding gladness. You think about shaking up a a, a bottle of uh, soft drink, and then you open the lid and it just gushes forth. That's the picture there. That's the picture for the word rejoices. To gush or to spring up with exceeding gladness. And so what is Mary celebrating here? Well, she's rejoicing in her salvation. She's rejoicing in the fact that God, Yahweh, would look on me and save me. Why? Because I deserved it? Because I earned it? Because I merited it? Absolutely not. Because it pleased him to do so. Because it pleased him to do so. You see, contrary to Catholic teaching, Mary was not born without original sin. She was just as desperately in need of a Savior as we are, and she knew it. How often do we consciously thank God for our salvation? We thank God for a lot of things. We thank God for getting us out of a bind when we're in a bind. We thank God for our health and and other things, which are good, and we should. But how often do we stop and just thank God for the fact that He saved us from the pit? And that He has set our feet on solid ground. How often are we overwhelmed that God would save a wretch like me? You see, there's nothing intrinsically good in us that should cause God to look on us with favor. Apart from the very child that Mary was carrying in her womb here, we would all be lost in sin and without hope. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You see, we don't add a single fiber to our salvation God hasn't saved us because of us. God has saved us if he has, despite of us. He saved us despite our rebellious, wicked hearts. Here's a great verse to memorize, Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You see, people, individuals who are conscious of what a great salvation they've been given, they overflow with adoration and thanksgiving toward God. They can't help it. To the degree that we are absolutely overwhelmed by the fact that God would save a wretch like me, we will overflow in thankful gratitude. We should marvel at God's saving grace. Look at verse 48, though. Luke teaches us something about marveling at God's kindness. Look at Mary's words here in verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I mean, Mary is literally saying here, who am I that God should choose me? That's what she's saying in verse 48. Who who am I that God should choose me? What incredible humility displayed toward God's kindness. This is such a God-honoring posture here. Reminds me of David's question in Psalm 8, verse 4, when when, when David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you would care for him? 
I mean, when you, when you think about all that God's hand has made, and here we exist on a small blue dot in the vast expanse of God's created cosmos, and then you ask yourself, who, who am I that God would be mindful of me? You see, David, as imperfect as he was, and we, just as imperfect as we are, knew that God was pleased with a humble heart. Isaiah, speaking about the one with a humble heart, says, For thus, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, that's your God, by the way, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, he dwells in a high and holy place, and also with him, those who have a contrite heart and a lowly spirit. Humility over the kindness of God. Notice also that Mary refers to herself as a doulos. If you were here last week, we talked about a servant. That's the word that Mary uses here. What? God, who am I that you would be mindful of me, your servant? We don't oftentimes like the thought of being a servant. As a matter of fact, in our sinful flesh, we recoil oftentimes at the thought of being submissive to anyone but ourselves. Am I the only one? How are you serving God? How am I serving God? How are you serving God's people? I mean, Jesus said of himself in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, that is the reason, John 1, 14, that the Word became flesh in the first place. The Word became flesh, that he, Jesus, might be a servant and that he might give his life as a ransom for many. Mary goes on to say here in this verse, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Here's Mary, a humble servant, a nobody from nowhere, and yet God exalted her. She didn't come from a big city, she didn't come from a wealthy family, and she had no status to propel her name into the spotlight, but God chose her to be the mother of the Savior. What a blessing, what what grace. Not only was Mary humble before God told her that she would carry the Savior, but she remained humble after And Mary never uses this blessing of God as an opportunity to be proud. You ever considered that? Mary never used the blessing given to her by God that she would be with child, the very Son of God, as an opportunity for pride. Matter of fact, just notice the eight times, kind of scan back through our text here, just notice the eight to ten times that Mary says, He has. He has, God has, he has done this, he has done this, he has done this for his servant. He will make good on his promises. He has exalted the lowly. That's that's humble language right there. He has. It's not about me, it's about him. Alexander McLaren, a great expositor of scripture, long passed away now, said this. He said, a pure heart is humbled by honor. Let that sink in for a moment. A pure heart is humbled by honor. And it's not so dazzled by the vision of future fame as to lose sight of the fact that God is the source of it all. Think of that simple young girl in her obscurity, having flashed before her the certainty that her name would be repeated with blessing till the world's end. And then, meekly laying her honors down at God's feet. 
What a lesson of how to receive all distinctions and all exaltations. Let me, let me share this thought with you, friends. Be practicing now what you'll do for all eternity. Be practicing now in laying down all exaltations at the feet of God because that's what we will do for all eternity. Get real good and familiar with doing that now. It's a great practice. Luke also tells us that we're to marvel at God's power. We're to marvel at his greatness, marvel at his saving grace, marvel at his kindness. But look at verse 49. We're to marvel at God's power. Look at what Mary says here. He who is mighty has done great things for me. You see, our God is a mighty, powerful, awesome God. The Bible is replete, replete, let me tell you with references to the mighty power of God. Think about Job 36.5. Job tells us that God is mighty in strength and understanding. Psalm 24.8 tells us that God is mighty in battle. Psalm 62.7 tells us that God is our mighty rock and our refuge. Isaiah 9.6, you can get all these texts later from my notes, tells us that God shall be called by the name Mighty God. Jeremiah 32.19 tells us that God is mighty indeed. Ezekiel 20, 33 tells us that God has a mighty hand. And Zephaniah 3 and Isaiah 63 declare that God is mighty to save. Marvel, my friends, over God's power. Be awestruck at the might of his hand. Undoubtedly, there were many things that were running through Mary's mind when she said, He who is mighty has done great things for me. But I think more than the astonishment that she was with child, that was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Mary is overcome by the reality that this child that she is carrying is also her Savior. Remember Gabriel told Mary in verse 31, if you back up just a little bit, that Mary was to call her son by the name Jesus, which literally means the Lord saves. Mary knew that she was unworthy. Mary knew that she had no defense before God, just like we. Mary knew that she couldn't save herself, but she knew that her omnipotent God could. And she's overwhelmed by the very child growing in her womb. Not only was he conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that child was to be her Savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me, she confesses. And then lastly, friends, we as believers should marvel over God's holiness. We should marvel over his holiness. You see, when God reveals one of his names, he's revealing something about his character. You ever thought about that? When God tells us one of his names, or when he reveals one of his names, he's revealing something about his character to us. You see, God reveals many of his names in Scripture because he wants us to know who he is. God is a self-disclosing God. He's he's not like uh, the Wizard of Oz who stands behind the curtain not wanting to be known but just speaking. God is a self-revealing God. He tells us his names that he reveals his character in. He's called El Shaddai. 
or the Lord God Almighty. He's El Elyon. He's the Most High God. He's El Olam, the Everlasting God. He's Jehovah Sabaoth. He's the Lord of hosts. He's Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord our shepherd. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord that provides. He's Jehovah Shalom. He is our peace. And Jesus is called by the name Emmanuel. God with us. And here Mary says, holy or hagion is the Greek there. Holy is his name. Holy is his name. What does this mean for us? What is, what is God's holiness? What does his revealing that name mean for you and me this morning? Well, it means that God is incomprehensibly set apart from us in terms of his righteousness and his moral purity. He conforms to no standard outside of himself. He alone is the standard by which all things and all people are judged. He is the bar. He is the judge and he is the jury. Holy is his name. This, perfect, this particular perfection of God is one that we see celebrated in the throne room of heaven as the, the seraphim and the cherubim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 6.3 You see, God is without even a shadow of sin. It's God's holiness that demands He hate our sin. It's God's holiness that demands he separate himself from our sin. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says this, speaking about God, he says, your iniquities, that's you and I, by the way, our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God. Our sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. You see, not only has our sin caused a separation between us and God, but our sin is personally offensive to God. How often do we consider that? I mean, even just in daily Christian life, how often do we consider not only is my sin destructive horizontally, but it is destructive vertically. It's an offense. It's a personal offense to God. Habakkuk writes this, your eyes are too pure, speaking about God, to even look on evil. A.W. Pink, another old dead guy, This is what he says. God must necessarily punish sin. Holy is his name, remember. God must necessarily punish sin. Sin can no more exist without demanding his punishment than without requiring his hatred of it. God has, check this, God has often forgiven sinners, but God never forgives sin. Stew on that for a moment. God has often forgiven sinners. If you're here this morning and you know Christ savingly, you are a forgiven sinner. But God never forgives sin. What do we mean by that? We mean that no sin is ever brushed under the rug. No sin is ever forgotten. No sin is ever tolerated. All sin is punished. All sin, without exception must be punished. And either the sinner himself or the sinner herself will bear the weight of that punishment for all eternity or Jesus Christ will bear our awful load. God never forgives sin. Sin is always, without exception, punished. God's holiness demands it. 
Now, when sin is punished, the sinner is forgiven. Just marvel for a moment. God's holiness requires that there be perfect justice for sinners. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You see, we don't don't come to God in our own terms. We come on his terms. Sin demands death. And that's a death that Christ willingly paid for all those who would come to him. Because God is holy, we're to approach him with the utmost reverence. Washed in the blood of the incarnate Son, yes. Having his righteousness imputed to our account, yes. Can we come to him boldly and with confidence, Yes, but we come like Mary in humility and reverence. Holy is his name. Number two on your outline. God's grace always works contrary to the ways of the world. God's grace always works contrary to the ways of this world. Look at verses 50 through 53. Luke writes, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is Mary's song here being continued. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. See, Mary transitions here. There's a transition in the text. Verse 55, Mary transitions from worshiping God for who he is to worshiping God for what he has done and will do, what he's promised to do, specifically through the coming Messiah. In other words, in light of what we know to be true about God, that's verses 46 through 49, what follows here is how he, God, relates and interacts with his people. Mary draws from many Old Testament texts here. Remember, that would have been Mary's Bible, the Old Testament Bible. It's all she had. Mary draws from many Old Testament texts here in these last six verses, and she sees them. She sees those verses that she'll use here, that she'll quote, as having their glorious fulfillment in the coming Messiah, the very son in which she was carrying. The point of verses 50 through 53 is that Jesus Christ will reverse all human opinions of what is great and what is insignificant. You see, God's economy is not like the world's economy. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, that God chose what is foolish to the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. See, God's economy is totally different from our economy. What we think is great, God says is insignificant. And what we think is insignificant, God says that's great. Mary makes three statements about how God relates to the proud. And then three corresponding statements that reflect how God relates to the humble. Let's look at how God deals with or relates to the proud first. We probably all have James chapter 4 memorized. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. He scatters the proud, if you want to write that down in your outlines. Look at verse 40, or 51, rather. God scatters the proud. He has shown great strength with his arm, but he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. You see, there always have been and there always will be scoffers. They're the proud, the arrogant. They exalt themselves. They take no account of God. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar for just a moment, if you're familiar with the story. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, he, he looks out over his kingdom, and in his pride, this is what he says. He says, is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? That's a bad thing to say. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar imagined in his heart that he was greater than he really was. And so God humiliated him with the strength of his own arm. God humiliated him. Peter encourages us saying, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. Think about this for a moment. Every time humility is spoken of in positive terms in your Bible, it's when we, by God's grace, okay, humble ourselves. When God does the humbling, it's a bad day. When God does the humbling, which he will, and even in the case of his children at times, God has to humble us in an act of discipline. But we are told, we're encouraged to humble ourselves by God's grace. We can't do it of our own power, in our own flesh. God has to enable us, but we are to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Peter tells us at the proper time, he'll exalt us. Oh, how often do we become proud? Oh, how often are we, are we self-sufficient in our thinking? Paul exhorts us in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of grace that has been given to you. You know what one of the greatest indicators of pride is? One of the greatest indicators of pride is your and my prayer life, or lack thereof. Because when we pray, I think it was Piper that mentioned this at one point, John Piper, he said, our, our prayer life, what it confesses is that God is the all-sufficient benefactor and that we are the ever-needy beneficiaries of all of his goodness and grace. And so when our prayer life is lacking, what it is exposing in our lives is a haughtiness, is an arrogance, is a pride. One of the greatest indicators of pride is your and my prayer life. And so the question is, does our prayer life reflect our dependency on God, or does it reflect our lack of dependency upon God. God scatters the proud. And number two here, God brings down the mighty. Look at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. You see, Mary understood that it's God who puts kings into power, and it's God who removes kings from power. And that's both a solemn warning to our leaders as well as an encouragement to us. Is it not? God installs the leaders and God brings them down. That's a solemn warning to leaders, and it's a great encouragement to us. I mean, our country just spent months, probably really years, in this presidential election process. Millions of dollars were spent in an effort to push one candidate ahead of the other for the most powerful position in the land. But we cannot forget, friends, that God is sovereign over the entire process. God raises up and God brings down, and he does it all at the command of his voice. 
Daniel reminds us in Daniel 2 that he, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and what light dwells within them. God knows all things, both of us and our kings. God brings down the mighty. And then three there, God sends the rich away empty. Look at verse 53. The rich he has sent away empty, Mary says. Mary understood here uh, what, what God was saying and what God isn't saying when God uses this language about sending away the rich empty. See, understand that Mary's not talking about riches here as much as she is talking about the heart attitude that oftentimes accompanies wealth. There's a heart attitude that oftentimes accompanies wealth. There are many wealthy people who honor God with their lives and their possessions. Absolutely there are. And God has blessed many individuals monetarily that honor God with what he has blessed them with. What Mary is saying here is that those who come to God must know that they have need of him. And it's easy, easier, might we say, for those who have everything they want to be blinded by what they really need. When, when we see ourselves or sense ourselves as having no need for anything, then why, why in the world do I need to come and receive grace? I can buy everything I need. I can acquire everything that I need. Interestingly enough, before King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and sent away to live with the beasts, it's an interesting story there in Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar says this, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. You see, the danger with riches is that they can easily become our treasure. What did Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 6? He said, where your treasure is, finish the sentence. There your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. It's a caution here. It's a caution for those of us who have been blessed by God to the degree that we might forget that we need him. We don't ever want to be in that position. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 50 here. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Write this down if you're taking notes. God has mercy on those who fear him. God has mercy on those who fear him. Mary's probably alluding here in verse 50 to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, David, David pens Psalm 103. And David says this, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. To such as those who keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments and do them. You see, Mary sees this mercy in verse 50 as coming through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mary's connecting dots here, okay? She's connecting the the dots of redemptive history. And she's, she's understanding that the one who is going to grant mercy is the one who's in her womb. It's the very Messiah, the Lord Jesus, that she's carrying. Matthew Henry says this, It's a certain truth 
that God has mercy in store, mercy in reserve for all that have a reverence for his majesty. That's marveling, marveling at his majesty and to do regard to his sovereignty and authority. But never did this mercy appear as in sending his son into the world to save us. Was God merciful in the Old Testament? Absolutely he was merciful to his people Israel and and to a vast number of people who didn't deserve his mercy. But never has God's mercy been so evident, never has God's mercy been so clearly seen as in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. In sending his son into the world to save us. God is merciful. What is mercy? We've talked about it before. God, uh, mercy is God withholding from us what we rightly deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding from us what we rightfully deserve. I love Psalm 103 again. David pins there. He says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's the definition of mercy. That God would not treat us as our sins deserve. That's a definition of mercy. We deserve just punishment for our sins. We deserve eternity in hell. But God is rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2. And look at who this mercy is for. Look at who this mercy is for here in verse 50. It's for those who fear him from generation to generation. What does it mean to fear God? We're commanded to do that all throughout Scripture. It would be good for us to know what that means, to have a healthy fear of God. It means to submit to his authority. It means to honor him. It means to obey him. It means to seek to please him. When we talk about the fear of God, Jerry Bridges, author that I respect greatly, talked about fearing God as reverential awe, approaching God with a reverential awe. That's what it means to fear him. Look at the duration of this mercy. We see who it's for. It's for those who fear him. Look at the duration of it. It's not just confined to one generation. God will, by his mercy, save people from each generation as it pleases him to do so. If you're sitting here this morning and you know him, praise be to him. What does this mean for our evangelism? Well, it means that we can proclaim the gospel with full assurance that God will save some. When we share our faith, We don't know who will come to Christ, but we have the blessed assurance that God will save some. And he may not save them through your initial proclamation of the gospel. He may save some, though you planted the seed and someone else came behind you and watered it. And then God made it grow. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Number two here, God exalts the humble. God exalts the humble. Look at Mary's words here. He has exalted those of humble estate. Number three, God fills the hungry. Look at verse 53 there. He's filled the hungry with good things. I love the imagery of this verse here, verse 53. The point is this. The rich who come to God self-satisfied in need of nothing, dependent on God for nothing, they're sent away empty. That's in terms of God's mercy. That's in terms of God's favor. It's in terms of God's salvation. But those who are humble, understanding their desperate need for his saving grace, God fills. He grants it. He gives it. Bountifully. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's close with number three this morning. 
I love this. God always keeps his covenant promises. God always keeps his covenant promises. Look at verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I think God's God's help. Did Did you notice that word there? God has helped his servant Israel. God's help is most gloriously displayed in his saving grace. God has helped his people in many times and in many ways throughout redemptive history. He's freed them from oppression. He's protected them. He's given them his word. He's fed them. He's blessed them with his presence. He's given them prophets to declare his truth. Over and over and over again, God has graciously helped his people. As a matter of fact, the original language here for the word help, it has the idea of taking someone by the hand and picking them up when they could not pick themselves up. It's the original language there behind the word helped. Picking someone up by the hand when they couldn't pick themselves up. Matthew Henry, again a great commentator, says this, He, God, has taken them by the hand and helped them up that were fallen and could not help themselves. Such were we, right? Dead in trespasses and sins. Could not pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Could not save ourselves. Could not help ourselves. And yet, God reaches down and helps them that are fallen and could not help themselves. Those who are sunk under the burdens of a broken covenant are helped by the blessings of a renewed covenant of grace. That's Christ. The benefactor of a new and greater covenant. The sending of the Messiah, on whom help was laid for poor sinners, was the greatest kindness that could be done, the greatest help that could be provided for God's people. And then let me close with this thought here. God's promises, they're good forever. God's promises are good forever. Mary knew God's promises. Again, she knew her Bible. That's evident from all the scripture that she recalls through her song of thanksgiving here. Everything that she has said to this point is the outcome of the fact that God is true to his promises of salvation concerning the coming Redeemer. Promises of old that were, that were made to Abraham and all of his descendants. Remember back to Genesis chapter 13? Just think for a moment here. All the way back to Genesis chapter 13, God promised there, promised Abraham that through his seed, He would bless the world. What was God talking about there? He was promising salvation. You see, Mary's connecting the dots here again. And here's what Mary's thinking in her mind. God who promised salvation through the seed of Abraham in Genesis chapter 13 is bringing that salvation to fruition and it's the very child I'm carrying. Emmanuel, God with us. And he will tear down the, 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 the loftiness of those who are proud and he will give grace and he'll fill the humble. He'll grant mighty salvation to all who seek him and find their need of him. What a great promise. You see, this salvation, this great salvation reaches its culmination when Jesus Christ sets his face like flint to the cross and he willingly goes there to bear our sin, to bear the sin of all who believe. Because we deserve it, No, because he remembers his mercy. Because he remembers his mercy. Let me close with this wonderful thought. Mary sees in the great wonder of her son's birth the accomplishment of the hopes of the ages and an assurance of God's mercy as the forever portion of his people. Her eyes at this point 
Her eyes could not have embraced the solemn facts of her son's rejection by his people. No shadows are yet cast across the morning of which her song is herald. She knew not in this moment of the dark clouds of thunder and destruction that would sweep over the sky. But the end has not yet come. And we have to believe still that the evening will fulfill the promise of the morning. And that the mercy which was promised from old to Abraham and the fathers shall be fulfilled at last and abide with his seed forever in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know him? Do you know him? Not Christmas stories about him. Not do you own a Bible or a great Advent book. But do you know him? Better question. Does he know you? Does he know you? If not, our encouragement to you as a local church, my encouragement to you as a local pastor, is just to humbly repent. Turn from your sin. He will cast away the proud, but he will receive with open arms the humble who see their need for him and who come to him in humility for salvation.